I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film, The Deepest Breath. Freediving is an extreme sport. And extreme sports have extreme consequences. Today, we're talking to director Laura McGann. Freedivers compete by swimming straight down to the deepest depths and back to the surface, all on a single gulp of air. Alessia Zacchini pushed herself to go down farther than any woman before. But she can't do it without safety divers like Stephen Keenan, great divers in their own right, tasked with rescuing competitors who black out before surfacing. The deepest breath follows the pair's growing bond on land and sea. But their quest for world records and championships will place them both in mortal danger. I was swimming as fast as I could. I need to see if they are alive. And I'm joined now by director Laura McGann. Laura, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hey, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me. So how did you first hear about the story of Alessia Zacchini and Stephen Keenan? So I read about Alessia and Stephen in the Irish Times in July 2017. So I didn't know what freediving was. I I did have to Google what is freediving. I was met by these like beautiful um, images and uh, video of freediver, you know, human beings behaving more like seals or dolphins under the water. I'd never seen anybody do anything like this before. And it was also, I didn't know this at the time, but it was also shot by freedivers. The camera work, it had a kind of fluidity to it. It was able to move up and down with the freediver, unlike, you know, a scuba diving camera cinematographer would be able to do. So I, it was just like nothing I'd ever seen before. So I was, I was initially like struck by the visual and also like the, oh my God, humans can do this element but then as I as the months kind of went past and I spoke to more and more people it was really Stephen and Alessia's stories that you know I knew there was a cinematic element to the film that if if it could be a a film but once I learned about Stephen and Alessia I knew that the story could really stand up with those images as well. What is freediving? I mean, there's a couple of different versions of what freediving is, right? Well, you know, yeah, I suppose there's the freedive. You can freedive in the bath, Rebecca. You can just hold your breath and put your head in the water. And that's technically freediving. There is a discipline uh, where they they don't do it in the bath. They do it in the pool where they do that. That's called static. But that's that's one type of freediving. But the type that we focus on is much more interesting. It's where they're in the sea and you take a deep breath on the surface, you hold your breath and you dive down as deep as you can go. And in competition, the deepest dive wins. So people can also do it in the pool. So Alessia, who's our, or this film's about Alessia and Stephen, um, Alessia started in the pool as a kid in Italy and she would have the monofin on and she would, you'd be doing, you do lengths of the pool underwater without coming up. So that's where she started. So really the sea and the pool are the main kind of two uh, differences. 
So there's a really powerful opening in your film in which we see Alessia say she never thinks about death. And then we watch her underwater doing her dive. It's a virtually uninterrupted shot of her going down the guide rope. The water gets darker and darker, and then she comes back up, and then she blacks out just a few feet below the surface. And the sequence lasts about three and a half minutes. Can you talk about your decision to start the documentary this way? The film starts with Alessia saying that she doesn't fear death. And and like most 24-year-olds, certainly me at 24, I wasn't thinking about death and I wasn't in any way concerned by that. And I suppose the arc of the film is, is Alessia, you know, being a young person, going back to when she's younger, fearless and really driven to then going through something which completely changes that mindset. And she understands what it is, what it means to lose somebody that you love and, and really like, unfortunately feels that massive grief. And so, so that would, that is kind of her Alessia's, you know, that's kind of the through line of that story. But also with the opening dive, there was no point in me starting the story anywhere else. You know, if, if the audience didn't know what free diving is and what the stakes are, there's no point in me telling you anything else about this story. So that was the first thing. I, and, and we could have started by having tons of voiceover saying, you know, this is an extreme sport or this is a really, you know, this is where you do this, that and the other. But it just was never going to immerse the audience in what it really was like. It, this is, I, I wanted to bring the audience as close to experiencing it themselves as I possibly could. And I suppose going to these locations and experiencing, you know, what it was like to be there now, you know, not freediving, but just like seeing these beautiful blue, blue, blue holes. It just made me know that the audience had to feel like they were in it, in it themselves. And, and that's why we, yeah, that's why we opened this film the way we did. Yeah, I mean, I was certainly left breathless watching that opening scene, especially when, you know, you see her say that she's doesn't think about death. And then you watch her come to the surface in this like incredibly distressed situation. Um, can you tell us about Alessia? Because she's one of these people who knew at an early age exactly what she wanted to do. She just seems so unbelievably driven. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I love Alessia's story. You know, the early part of Alessia's story really drew me in because she had a dream to be a world champion freediver. I, I don't think it really, you know, existed as a career. So when she mentioned it to a select few people, she was kind of told that it was a silly idea and to, that she should be a bit more serious. She kept it a secret, but she they, she really held on to this dream. And, and I, I think like a lot of young girls, you know, when they have a, a, a dream to do something that isn't quite, you know, a natural, what seems like a natural fit, you can get you can get put down by by people's attitudes to, well, you can't do that. And she recognized that she was being told this, but she didn't change her mind. And that's what I love about Alessia is that she said, OK, you, you think that I can't do that. That's fine. But I still think I can. And I'm going to quietly, I'm not going to argue with you over it, quietly go ahead and pursue my dream. Yeah, so, so basically she goes to the pool. Uh, she's allowed to do a little bit in the pool. And she's better than the adult men at 13. She's better than the adult men who've been doing it for years. Uh, so really quickly after that, a rule 
popped up out of nowhere that you weren't allowed to compete until you were 18. Mm. And here she was again being told that this is not for you. You are not allowed to come here and excel. And I just thought there was, the, you know, that was reflective, you know, the world is free diving, but it was reflective of a lot of um, young girls stories where, yeah, you're just kind of not, you're not exactly encouraged, let's say, to do certain things or to, to try and do certain things. So I just thought, I just thought she is fantastic. Look at her. Not, and, and so when she was told she wouldn't, couldn't compete for four years, she said, OK, and she went away and she trained and she came back when she was 18 and she arrived like a rocket. And blew them all out of the water. I'm really curious because this sport is so singular and I've, I've watched a lot of sports documentaries for this podcast and talked to a lot of directors of sports documentaries about individual sports. And this question that I'm about to ask you doesn't always have the same answer. Other competitors in the sport, other women freedivers in particular, does Alessia view them as inspirations purely or as rivals or or both? Because it seems like there is some kind of unusual combination there. There absolutely is. And it's quite beautiful, actually, like with Natalia Malchinova was she held all of the world records in all the disciplines. She was the greatest freediver, you know, and, and everybody, not just young women, but everybody looked up to her. Alessia was so much younger than, than Natalia. So Natalia was very much a role model. Um, it's interesting how the freedivers kind of phrase things when they talk about competition. They, they say that they further the world record. You know, I'm furthering the world record. So, you know, it's kind of almost like there's a, there's a little vibe of like it being a team, you know, where Hanako gets it to 103 and Alessia gets it to 104. Now, obviously, there's moments like in the film where you just want to bring you. OK, it's great that Alessia is delighted that she got the 102. But the fact that Hanako broke it the very next day, you're just like, oh, I think she might have wanted to bring that home and, and be the record holder for more than a day. So, so there's moments, and then she really wanted to bring the record home, obviously, and, and she, she pushed it to that 104. But there's definitely an element of, um, people furthering the world record rather than like, I'm breaking your record and then you're breaking mine. You know, it's much less possessive than, yeah, than that. So Stephen Keenan, he sort of took the opposite path. He he didn't always know exactly what he wanted to do. Like Alessia, he kind of was traveling the world, searching for his purpose, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and like that just struck me from the word go with this with this story was that like they were the opposite to each other. Like they were they were yin to each other's yang. Like Alessia was just knew what she wanted to do and she was entirely focused on it. Where he didn't know what he wanted to do and just threw his energy out into the world and kind of like just see where the wind takes me. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Also I'm a bit worried about my I knew I didn't want to stay at home, settle down. I knew that wasn't gonna happen. But then my mother just got sick. It was total, totally, uh, totally extreme opposite ends of the of the spectrum, but in a really refreshing way, you know, and you just think, God, he could do with a little bit of uh, maybe a little bit of her, you know, direction and she could do with a little bit of his. Let's see where the wind takes me, like kind of kind of vibe. So so it just was really clear from the word go that there was something about the two of them, that when they would, you know, connect, they had a lot to kind of offer each other. 
Now, he was a great freediver in his own right, wasn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen was uh, the Irish national record holder. I want to say, was it 61 or 51 meters? I can't quite remember. Hmm. But he also went to 90 meters in a different in a different discipline. Yeah. So he started off as scuba diver, then got into uh, freediving, competitive freediving. You know, himself and his friend Christoph would, uh, you know, Christoph was going for the Belgian record. Stephen was going for the Irish record and they would compete, you know, at competitions a lot a lot of the time in the Blue Hole and further afield as well. Stephen went to Kalamata and he had quite a bad blackout and the safeties there didn't exactly know how to deal with the kind of blackout that Stephen had had. And he got a really awful fright from that. And and that's when he he kind of seemed to realise that okay athletes are going along to these competitions just presuming that everybody is kind of up to speed on what has to be done and when uh, if something kind of goes awry under the water and people are presuming this and it's not necessarily the case so he kind of took it upon himself to go learn how to be a safety and kind of help bring up the safety standards kind of across the board uh, among the freediving community. Now, Stephen did make a name for himself as a safety diver by rescuing the world champion. Um, What did that one feat teach us about him? It's kind of, I think it's one of those situations where you don't know what you're capable of until you're in the moment and you're having to react. And certainly whether Stephen knew it or not, I don't think anybody around him really realized that Stephen, if you're put, if, if you put Stephen in this scenario, this is how he will react and he will dig deep and he will find this kind of mental strength and, and physical strength to go the extra mile. Steve started to have contractions. He's seconds away from the blackout. But then he saw Alexi get into trouble around 40 meters. Split seconds decisions, save Alexi or save himself. And it's kind of like a flight or f- fight scenario. And, and Stephen very much got stuck in there and became, you know, he put his own life on the, on the line, you know, for to save Alexi, to bring him back up. And, you know, in a way, that's the kind of person you want as your, as your safety, right? The person who, absolutely will bring you back up no matter what. And and that's the reputation that he developed. And people, you know, when I spoke to them, people said that. They were like, you know, if he's your safety, that he's got you. You just know it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Stephen's father, Peter. Um, what was it like to talk with him? Oh, I could, I could just talk to... Peter for a year. He he was uh, so I met Peter initially a few months. I can't remember. Maybe about six months after the accident, or maybe a bit less. And I'd been speaking to people all over the world who had been posting online, and then one person would put me on to the next person. And this was in two thousand seventeen, so it was just on Skype. Someone said, "Look, I spoke to Peter, and he said he'd like to talk to you." So Peter, they gave Peter my email, and Peter emailed me, and he said will you meet me in a place called Hardy's Bar in Dunleary? And Hardy's Bar was a hotel kind of coffee shop bar uh, that was just downstairs from my apartment. And I was like, what? (laughs) And he lived across the road from me. So he lived like, I don't know, like 100 metres from my apartment. So that was just 
weird. I, I like it was just so so we met down in, in the coffee shop and um I couldn't believe it, like having been speaking to people all over the world, you know, for, for that long and for Peter to be around the corner, probably shopping in the same supermarket as me. It's not a big town. <laughs> so we got chatting and we, I met uh, Peter and his, he brought along his friend, Michal Holmes, who was a retired radio producer with Orti, the national broadcaster here in Ireland. And uh, we just sat and talked about Stephen and he had a really thoughtful way that he spoke about Stephen and about Stephen's life and about his own grief and how, you know, some people live to 80, you know, and they don't live as much as Stephen did. It did inform his personal philosophy. Live for today, for you never know what's coming down the line. So he wanted to drink up every last drop of the world. He did kind of feel like there would be a phone call someday. And... He, like he says in the film, he just had to live with that. And that phone call did come. The way he looked at it was, you know, this is kind of life. This is like Peter was a paediatric consultant in the National Children's Hospital here in Dublin. And like he has seen a lot in his life. He's seen, he's helped a lot of people, but he's also witnessed, you know, people come into the world and people come out of the world a lot more than maybe the normal person would have. And he just had, he brought with him, he brought such wisdom to to the grief that he kind of described in the film. Hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of making this film. I mean, there's a lot of footage that I'm assuming you didn't shoot. I'm wondering, um, how did you get all of that footage and, and how much of that footage was there for you to go through as you were putting it together? The first the first thing was that day where I met Peter down in the in the Hardy's bar after uh, I mentioned that he was with his friend Michal Holmes. And after about an hour, he put this little pen drive down onto the table and he said, look, there's some interviews with Stephen on that uh, Michal recorded interview, audio audio interviews with Stephen a couple of times. And, you know, you can use them for the documentary if you want. And so I went home and I listened to and there's like 14 hours of audio interviews. Like going through the files, I was looking at the length and they were all like an hour long each. And I was just like flabbergasted because, you know, that's the one piece that we would never, you'd never be able to, to create, you know, you'd never be able, it's just, if it doesn't exist, you know, it doesn't exist. And and here it was. When I was young, I used to collect National Geographic and I remember it was a picture of a gorilla wading through this peat bog water and this photograph was taken in northern Congo. I was going to travel to Congo and then find the gorillas. I was sitting on the couch listening to this and I was just like, I was on a beach in Brazil. I was mm. up on top of a volcano. I was, you know, going through the Congo with Stephen. The detail that he would describe his experience, he really painted a very vivid picture of, of the places that he went to. Mm. And then uh, a week or so later, Peter gave me a big box of tapes that Stephen had recorded on his travels in in Africa and Australia and Asia and in the tape box was also the uh, camcorder and there mm. I saw the images that were that's what the interviews were about 
And I thought, oh my God, there was moments like that. Lots of like absolute, oh, oh my God moments. And then all of the different freediving events, like freediving is a really well documented sport. You know, it documents itself really well. There's incredible freediving cinematographers. Dan Verhoeven supplied a lot of his underwater footage um, of competitions. So that just kept happening. So we have so many suppliers and so and it's really down to the dedication of people who were filming this sport when it wasn't even, you know, it barely existed. And so 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 what we did then was we would supplement like really the amount everything was covered. And there was just the odd scene where for example, you know when Stephen sa- saves Alexei Molchanov in Kalamata, what often the cinematographers at the time they wouldn't film the safety diver because it's not about the safety diver it's about the person trying to do a world record so you know we had incredible material from that day but we didn't have a shot of Stephen just waiting and that was the whole point of of our telling of this story you know this wasn't about Alexei trying to break a world record this was about Stephen doing the deepest safety you know that had ever been done before and waiting and waiting and a lot of people would turn back and, and so we went in and, and filmed that in, in Mexico and we filmed it kind of in, in the same kind of style as the archive so there was just small bits like that that we, we filled in but the archive yeah having the amount of archive that we had it was a treasure trove That's incredible So we said in the opening that we were confronted by this, you know, kind of terrifying scene where Alessia needs to be resuscitated when she comes back up after her dive. And then we find out that that happens pretty frequently in this sport. So you must have had a lot of those kinds of scenes in your raw footage. And I'm wondering, how did you decide how much of that to show? Because that is, you know, it's frightening watching somebody almost die on film, right? But the stakes are high and it's important for us to see it. So can you talk about that decision? Well, I suppose it's a fine line and we were conscious that it is hard to watch and it is disturbing. But we also were conscious that it is part of the sport, you know, and the freediving community have come a long way in kind of putting their hands up and saying, look, this is part of the sport, but this is how we mitigate the risk. This is how we bring people around. And if if you hang around long enough, you'll see that almost 100% of blackouts, they come around within a couple of seconds. And that is true. You know, most people haven't seen that and haven't been around to see people come around after a few seconds. It is a really tricky line to to walk. And I just wanted really, I just wanted it to be like a truthful, like just an honest representation of the sport, all of its beauty, all of its wonder, you know, the risks involved and just be kind of balanced. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the water rescue scene there is an important one because it brings Alessia and Stephen together and then they start training together and you have that incredible footage, day one of them training, day two of them training, day three of them training. What made them so magical together? Oh, well, that's just like one of those mysteries, What, whatever, whatever brings people together. Like what we see is them almost being able to communicate underwater from day one there was just, you know, obviously I wasn't there. So I'm I'm looking at footage and I'm speaking to people who were there and who were in Dahab. And like a couple of people say, say that there's just there was just this spark. There was just a connection. There was a chemistry. There was kind of like they knew each other, even though they'd never met. And it was really, really special. We are going to win the world championships. We are going to make world records. 
this amazing lady is going to win for the World Championships. And Alessia describes Stephen, you know, in the film as showing her what it means to hug somebody. Hmm. So you can just see that there's like there's a real magnetism there between the two of them. You can see it. You can see it in the in the footage, and the, even there was some other little bits of footage that didn't quite make it into the film, where it was just like really kind of yeah, it was just quite sad to watch. You know, knowing what we know now. Yeah. It's really extraordinary watching her make that record and watching them make eye contact as she comes up on her rope. Yeah. And, you know, knowing that they can't have any assistance or anything, but like yeah. it's almost like their eye contact, you know, it's all she needed was to, to see him was all she needed to say that I'm OK. It was it was truly incredible. Yeah. Ultimately, Alessia does have this non-competitive goal, which was to swim this arch at the blue hole. And timing there is critical. Can you talk about why um, everything went wrong in July of 2017 or, or what went wrong? Well, I can't really talk to why everything went wrong, but like, I suppose somebody once said that there was like, there was probably 50 things that went wrong that day, mm. you know, like any accident. Sometimes it's an accumulation of small things and then the straw that breaks the camel's back. It said that it was quite windy, you know, it said that the conditions were a little bit rougher than they would have liked. But really, everything was going according to plan. Um, Alessia went down and went through the arch. So they timed it beforehand. But one of the things she described about going through the arch was that because they had timed it at a different depth of her going through, that the pressure above her was different. So so swimming across at 50 metres down is different to swimming across at, say, 10 metres, 5 metres down. There was a feeling there of, oh, shit, this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be um, from Alessia going through. And then, of course, she's keeping to the right of the of the arch and Stephen's supposed to be on his way down. And uh, Stephen's been brought down by a sandbag. So it just means that he's using less energy. He holds on to the sandbag at the at the top. Lily waits just for Stephen to give her the thumbs up to say, oh, you can let me go down now. And she unclips the sandbag and it brings him down to the bottom nice and quick and without having to use any energy. However, he asked for 10 more seconds kind of at the last second. He asked me for 10 more seconds. I just didn't really understand why, because um, so far everything had been going according to plan. So maybe the heart was going a bit too fast for his liking. So he wanted to take a few more seconds to be really ready. I really don't know. Like Lily says in the film, you don't get into conversation with somebody you can't when they're already the seconds would be passing. You'd be losing more time by, by talking. But also if someone's preparing for a dive, they can't talk. They're just kind of getting into the zone. And, and Lily says, you know, maybe he just needed to lower his heart rate. Maybe, you know, there's lots of maybe he's. And the thing is, nobody knows what was going mm -hmm. through his mind. It wasn't really characteristic of him you know, having timed it all out so well, you know, to push it back 10 seconds, but then also to kind of take another 10 seconds to get ready to go, resulting in 20 seconds delay. And also because Alessia was was experiencing, you know, in the arch, she was experiencing this pressure. She was having to kind of push harder so as not to be pushed down. And that resulted her in, in her actually going a bit faster. So she exited the arch 10 seconds faster. So a lot of it came down to that 30 second disconnect between the two of them. Um, they basically missed each 
other, right? They missed each other, yeah. Yeah, Stephen yeah. was supposed to kind of be at the, the bottom of the rope so that when Alessia came out of the arch, she'd see him at the bottom of the rope because it's very hard to just see a rope in the middle of the sea, you know, when it's so big. And then they'd follow the rope up together and that was what they planned. But because, unfortunately, Stephen wasn't there, Alessia didn't see the rope and, mm. and kind of went, veered in the in the wrong direction. You know, there's been lots of theories that people have had, but... And hindsight is a wonderful thing where you could say, if only there was a light on the end of the rope or if only there was a scuba diver at the end of the rope or if only this or the, you know, and all these things are perfectly easy to suggest with the beauty of hindsight. But on the day, that's how they chose to do it. And they felt like it was, it was safe. And sadly, there was a hole in the plan. So it's not until the end of the film when we learn what happened to Stephen that we see Alessia for the first time speaking to the camera. Can you talk about what it was like to do that interview? So myself and Alessia had been talking like in depth about everything, you know, in her life from childhood to up to now for four years at this point. We, we actually did another interview. We did an initial interview in 2019 I went to Rome and did an interview with Alessia and then we did lots of voice note interviews back and forth during COVID. And so we knew, go, we both knew going in what the interview was about. And it was a very, it was very raw and Alessia was, you know, wanted people to, wanted to let people in, you know, to what she had gone through. Alessia really wants people to know Stephen, not just remember him, but know him. And and she kind of laid it all bare, you know, her grief and her like feelings for him and the loss of Stephen and what it's meant to her in in that interview. And and really like by that time we had spoken, we had become so close, you know, you do. Like she's like a good friend she's like a sister you know I very, I'm just so fond of her and we knew each other sitting down for that interview and I followed her lead you know and that's that was my take on this project from with everything you know is I just followed people's leads people wanted to make this film about Stephen Alessia wanted to tell to tell Stephen's story and in turn she kind of knew that to tell Stephen's story she also needs to contextualize it with her story and she was prepared to do that which like is not easy you know we had a lot of chats before and after and it's um yeah it was a really hard day it was a really really hard day for for Alessia you know I kind of as best I could just went with her on everything Laura, you told me that you first heard about the sport when reading a newspaper article. Now everyone is going to know about the sport after watching your film on Netflix. What are you hoping that viewers will take away after watching The Deepest Breath? I hope they take away just the passion and love that Alessia and Stephen have for the sea, for each other, for like you know seizing the day kind of living your life maybe not in the way that like you're expected to uh, maybe following your gut a little bit more and following your heart following your dreams and you know maybe the world might be a little bit of a nicer place if if more people did that 
Well, that's what I took away from it. Oh, Laura cool. McGann, thank you so much for talking to me oh, about I The Deepest Breath. It was just a wonderful, wonderful film. Thank you so much for joining me on You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Laura McGann. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 